Okay, our scripture and our sermon. Um, the sermon passage is 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11, as we continue to go through uh, the uh, book of Thess 1 Thessalonians. And we continue to uh, read about the day of the Lord. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anyone, anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Amen. This is God's word. If you um, knew that the COVID crisis was coming before the COVID crisis came, what would you do? I tell you one thing I would have done. I would have bought stock in Zoom. I would have sold my house and bought as much stock in Zoom as I could. What about you? bought lots of toilet paper. You would be sitting on a stock of toilet paper. Maybe you would readjust your financial portfolio. Maybe you would make some work decisions. Maybe you would make some adjustments to your house knowing full well that you were gonna sp be spending a lot more time in it. The point is you would prepare for it because you knew that it was coming. And that's really what this passage is all about. You have a church, a group of people who have given their lives and put their hope on Jesus Christ. And they're asking the question, what can we do to prepare for the coming of the day of the Lord? And we must ask the same question, right? Because no one knows the day, no one knows the time. Whether it's that church or whether it's our church in our generation, the Lord is surely going to come. But the answer is we don't know when. So really, we have some very practical information on how we can prepare for the coming of Christ. And I'm going to cover three specific points that are brought up in this passage. Number one, we need to give up guessing. We need to give up playing the guessing game of when the Lord is going to come because nobody knows. Number two, we need to pursue holiness as we live a life of faith waiting for his return. And then finally, number three, we need to hold fast to grace each and every day as we wait for that trumpet in the sky and the coming of the Lord. So let's begin with point number one. We need to give up guessing. We can see here it's implied the first question that they ask of Paul, uh, the apostle, is when is he coming? And Paul responds, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
you can hear Paul answering, there's no need for you all to ask this question because you yourselves are fully aware of what Jesus said, that no one knows the day or the hour, not even the Son of Man. In other words, if Jesus said, you shouldn't be trying to figure it out, you shouldn't be trying to figure it out because the day of the Lord is unpredictable. It's uh, a likened to as a thief coming in the night. Now, how does a thief come when he comes to rob and steal? He comes in the night, doesn't he, right? Because the, he has the shadow of darkness as his cover so he can sneak up on the house. Again, the thief does not text the inhabitants of the house before he comes, does he? He does not announce his arrival with a Mayflower moving van. No, rather he watches and he waits for that time when they least expect it because that is when the thief comes. But when that thief ultimately does come, it is unmistakable, right? When one comes home to find their house has been burgled and the TV is missing. I love the word burgle, by the way. When do I get to use the word burgle? Your TV's missing, your jewelry is stolen, all of your personal effects are gone, and the house is ransacked. Because it may be unpredictable, but it's unmistakable. In other words, when it happens, you're going to know, church. But one thing to be sure is that it is unmistakable. It is absolutely certain, for the Lord spoke again and again about his coming. Remember Jesus speaking to his disciples, in my Father's house are many rooms. If or not so, I would, I have to, why would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I spoke last week about uh, the, when Jesus departed uh, from the earth and the disciples were looking up wistfully, longing for him, and he was gone for their sight. And the angel said to him, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. There's no mistake that the last book of the revelation of John or the apocalypse, which means uncovering, speaks of what? The coming of the Lord. And the final verse, or the, la the second to final verse, is, Oh, come soon, Jesus. We're waiting for his coming. But it is certain that he's coming. There's more certainty to the Lord's coming than the sun rising tomorrow. If there's one thing we can be certain about the Lord's return, is that we cannot be certain about his timing. But we can be certain about his return. But this return will be sudden and surprising, and especially for unbelievers. It shouldn't be as sudden and surprising for believers, but it will be for unbelievers. Notice verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, sudden destruction will come upon them. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. See, people will be saying everything's fine. Everything's going great. Peace and security to you. Look at all the peace and security around us. And right then and there, and when it comes, it will not be like the thief once he has come. 
But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you. What is he speaking of when he's talking about darkness? He's talking about unbelief. He's talking about not understanding. He's talking about willfully hiding yourself from God and his plan, his will, and his ways. Jesus put it this way, and this is the judgment. The light, in other words, himself, has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. In other words, those people who are living in darkness are fooling themselves. They've bought into a lie that God does not exist or that God doesn't know that they exist. Even though the scriptures say that deep down everyone knows that God exists. And everyone knows that we are accountable to God for our life and there will be an accounting. They play peekaboo with God. Do you know when a, a child is, is very small, they don't have what's called object permanence. Meaning when they put their hands over their eyes, they literally believe that that person isn't there. It's only later that they're able to intuitively understand. But of course, how foolish that we could put our hands over our eyes and make everything disappear. Not so with God. And so those unbelievers that do not, uh, that thrust down the light and live in the darkness trust in other things. Our country, which has stood strong and stable for hundreds of years, and though we feel the shakings of uh, uncertainty in our land, people still trust in peace and security in our land and our land alone. Or maybe in science and technology. They say that the universe is 13 billion light years across. And it will last another 6 billion years until the lights go off. In other words, until then, no worries. Peace and security. All the while that the clock is ticking. And the Lord, God, God the Father, is planning. And that Jesus Christ will certainly come. It's there, underneath the surface, moving closer and closer, inexorably faster, until that day, which we do not know which is. I don't know if you remember the day of the 26th of December, 2004. It was the day of the third most powerful earthquake in the history of the world, 9.0 on the Richter scale. The only problem was it was underwater. 19 miles below sea level to be exact, about 100 miles off the coast of Sumatra in the Indian Ocean. I'm talking about the giant tsunami that killed over 225,000 miles, that ended with a bang, but began with a whisper. See, there were no tsunami warning systems in the Indian Ocean to detect tsunamis, and it's not easy to detect when they're in deep water because the tsunami as it begins is only about a foot or two uh, uh, sort of traveling across the water. You can't really see it. But as it gets closer and closer and closer and the ground gets more and more shallow, it grows and it grows. To some people, they experience this wave which in some places grew to 100 feet high within 30 minutes. 
But to others, like on the coast of Africa, it had to travel as long as seven hours before it hit South Africa. And there were some people in Thailand, I know there have been several movies about this, there's these beautiful resorts in Thailand on the coastline where people were enjoying peace and security when the water receded almost 60 feet from the coastline and that tsunami came and many, many, many did not escape. See, it's easy to fall into the complacency of the world, is it not? But the world says peace and security. All is well. You are well. It's easy because we don't know when the day is coming and Christ hasn't come yet for so long in our calendar to reduce the second coming to an academic discussion that we have over coffee every now and then. But you see, the wave is traveling. And the wave will either bring salvation or destruction. Because only peace and security can be found in Him. And so the message is to be ready, to be watchful, and to be waiting. Give up guessing, and yet be ready. So that moves me to my second point. If we can't know when, I mean, if those people had the tsunami warning system, all would be well. But if we cannot know when, how do we prepare? How do we be ready? The way to be ready for Jesus' return is the pursuit of holiness in Christ by the life of faith. I'll say it again. The way to be ready for Jesus' return is the pursuit of holiness in Christ by a life of faith. Look at these instructions in verse 6, 7, and 8. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. And he goes on, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So there are five things that we are admonished to do as we wait for the coming of Christ. To be awake, to be sober, and to cultivate faith, love, and hope. Let's look at those. Let's look at point number one. To be awake. Let us not sleep, but keep awake. Well, you know what happens when you go to sleep, right? You're sitting there and you're watching a show, maybe with a friend or with a spouse, and you start to get out of it, so to speak. You lose your bearings. All of a sudden, your eyes begin to droop and your head begins to droop. And you forget what's going on and maybe you snap too and 10 minutes have passed in the TV program, but you've been out of it. This passage is saying, let us not sleep, but keep awake. It's giving us an analogy. Sleeping meaning being out of what's really going on, the spiritual reality of the world around us. The fact that Christ is in charge and his kingdom is advancing and that he's coming. To be awake is to be watchful for his return. Remember the story that Jesus told about the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. The way a wedding was performed in ancient times, it wasn't uh, sort of a, a customary time and the bride would walk down the aisle. It began with the, bride, uh, the bridegroom who would travel from his house at an unexpected time. 
and he would come with his bridal party and he would take the bride, uh, the bride and they would go and they would have this great feast. Well, these virgins, they're waiting for the bridegroom to come, but no one knows exactly the time. He seems to be delayed. And so they took their lamps and they were expectantly waiting, excited to be with the bride and to celebrate. But the coming took longer than they expected. And they, they didn't trim their lamps. They fell asleep. They went out of it, so to speak. And all of their lamp oil burnt down. And when the time came, they didn't have any oil to see what was going on. They fell asleep instead of keeping awake. What this is saying is that we need to live our day-to-day -day life in the reality of Christ and his second coming. That means not living for this world, but living for the world to come. What are the values of this world? This world values you and me based on really three things. Number one, what you have. Number two, what you do. And number three, what others think of you. And we can spend our entire life living uh, in these criteria, hoping that we will achieve and receive and accomplish what it is uh, that the world will finally call us acceptable. But to live a awake life means not to live for this world and not to live for this life. Rather, to live for Christ and his kingdom. See, if you believe that this world is the only world that there is, then all of your life is going to be lived in the fact that he is, going, is not going to come again. Rather, you're going to enjoy all that this life has to offer because there's only one life. No, we must be awake. But we also must be sober. It's the second sub-point. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. What is getting drunk but drinking to excess? See, what the Bible is saying is that you must be self-controlled. When you drink to excess, all of a sudden, you become the servant and the drink becomes the master, right? It tells you what to do. You are its slave, so to speak. If you don't believe that Christ is coming, this life is all there is, and you will grab as much as you can. But you cannot master this world because you will never, ever have enough. Rather, you will get drunk metaphorically speaking. Who can forget that great movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Edmund tastes for the first time Turkish delights given to him by the White Witch, and instantly he's hooked by the pleasures of this world, that he must have more and more, even if it means selling out his brothers and his sisters. Why do people get drunk at night? Well, it's because at night there's darkness. Our, our, our deeds are hidden more, so to speak. Because we believe in Jesus' return, we must be sober. We must be moderate and we must be self-controlled in the way that we use this world. Because this world is not all there is. And it's not the most important thing. 
There are things that will matter, my friends, more than this world. And so we must use the world and love the Lord. Not love the world and use the Lord. For a sober life is a surrendered life. I'll say it again. We must use the world and love the Lord. Not love the world and use the Lord. We must be awake. We must be sober. And we must cultivate faith. As verse 8 says, to put on the breastplate of faith. We live the Christian life by faith, not by sight. Notice that it's something that you put on. It's a decision that you make to see the world through eyes, different eyes, eyes of faith, not through eyes of sight. What exactly is faith? I'll let the Bible define it. Hebrews 11.1, 1. now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It's believing that there's an invisible quality to life, that even though we can't see God with our human eyes, that he is more real than anything. It's learning to trust God and to navigate life by his word in, by the control of the Holy Spirit. It's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 in a nutshell, isn't it? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding, on your own sight. Acknowledge him in all your ways and he will make your path straight. See, I have two choices what I'm going to trust in, either his word or the world. And the world gives me a message and the word gives me a radically different message. I can either trust with sight on the world or trust with word, uh, trust the word by faith. Believing that as I follow the commands of God, as I trust in the promises of God, that God will lead me to where I need to go and to where I need to be. To cultivate a life of faith is by minute, uh, minute by minute, to keep our eyes on things above. Think of how the world paints a picture of Jesus Christ and the cross. It's just something that happened back then. Uh, historical event. It's not really important. We'll drag it out every now and then during Christmas, you know, a Life Magazine special issue. But it doesn't have any pertinence to your life and how you live today. Certainly don't center your life around the cross. Around Jesus Christ, he was killed, he was crucified. He's just another great teacher. Do I accept and receive that? I do if I live by sight. But if I live by faith, I understand that all of history is measured around that one time. The cross and the cave. The life of faith is learning to take God's, uh, God at his word despite all the evidences we may have to the contrary. If you want to be ready for Jesus' return, you've got to live by the book. We live a life of faith and we cultivate a life of love. Remember Jesus Christ at the Last Supper, as he's with his friends and he's about to suffer. He tells them, this is the way that you are to live until I come back. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. Do you want to be ready for his return? then live a life of love, moment by moment, 
Loving God. Loving one another. Your spouse, the, if you have children, your friends, your fellow congregation members. Who is it that you need to love today to begin to cultivate a life of love? One of my favorite churches is a church that we encountered when we went down to Nicaragua. Uh, the name of the church is Verbo, which, which means verb, uh, because love is a verb. Verbo means that we are to live a life of love. That's what the church is about, cultivating a life of faith, cultivating a life of love, and cultivating a life of hope. Put on the helmet of hope. You know, you can get through just about anything if you have hope that it's all going to turn out all right in the end. It's hope that provides us with endurance. It's hope that provides us with anticipation for what is to come. It's hope that provides us with encouragement when we're discouraged and we want to give up. And we're going to need all of these things as we journey through the Christian life until the coming of Christ. And may it be soon. A life of being awake, of being sober, of faith, hope, and love. And this brings me to my final point. To live this life being prepared for Christ's coming is to hold fast to grace. Motivation is what moves and empowers your life. Here's a truism, that the person that knows why in the end will always beat the person that knows how. I learned that from Jackie Joyner Kersey. I believe it was Kersey, who grew up with polio in the beginning. She had to be uh, she had to wear braces. It was either Jackie Joyner or one of those great Olympian athletes who went on to win multiple uh, gold medals in the Olympics. She said, there were people more talented than me, but there was no one that wanted it more than me because I knew what it was like to wear those braces, to not be able to run. There's no one more thankful, as Stephen Curtis Chapman says, to sit at the table than the one who remembers hunger's pain, right? We must hold fast to grace. Verse 9, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he died for us, verse 10, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. See, Jesus didn't just die so we would be forgiven of sins. He did die so that we would be forgiven of sins, but more than that, he died so that we might live with him, that we might know him, that we might talk with him, that we might experience what it means to be held in his arms, to see the smile on his face, well done, good and faithful servant to come into the presence of our Heavenly Father who calls us child, who calls us son and daughter. There's no temporary pleasure or blessing in this world that could possibly substitute for that eternal blessing of fellowship with Him. And so what the Bible is saying and what I'm saying to you is that Jesus is not just a means to an end. He is the end. 
He is the goal. He is the point. And if you're living for him, you'll never have to give him up. Everything else in this world, if you live for it, you'll have to give it up. But if you're living for Christ, you'll never, ever have to give him up. So how do we pursue a life as we become ready for his coming? Give up guessing. Be ready, but give up guessing. Pursue holiness. Be awake. Be sober. Be watchful. Be loving. Be hopeful. And hold fast to his grace. Jesus, you are more than enough. Father, you are more than enough. Anyone who would move heaven and earth, who would get up on a cross and die for me, that he would want to be with me, is worth all of my life, all of my hope, all of my dreams. The passage closes with the point, encourage one another with these truths. Gosh, we need encouragement, don't we, in these days? There's so much bad news. There's so many things that we could focus on that would take our hearts and just, just crush them. We need encouragement to remember that we're not home yet, that this world is gonna be transformed and resurrected, that all my faults and failures are ultimately gonna be done away, thrown into the sea of forgetfulness as I'm resurrected into his likeness. That's a life worth living for. That's a destiny worth pursuing. May it be the path that you and I follow today and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that this is not the end of simple self-improvement, maybe gaining a few more trinkets, a few more hand claps from the applause of the crowd, but rather we have a sure destiny, a salvation that is coming, a citizenship in heaven. Let us wait for it with eager anticipation. Let us pursue holiness and live a life worthy of this promise that you have given us. Let us be awake and be sober and cultivate a life of faith, hope, and love as we encourage one another to not settle for anything less than you. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.